open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, the 7th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Today we normally hand out traditional Bibles to people who don't have them, but we're not going to do that today. And so if you would like a traditional Bible and you don't have one, then you can pick one up at the Welcome Center or at the back at the end of the service. But you can also take your digital device and open up the version or the Bible app. If you haven't downloaded that app, download it now. It's amazing. It's got so many different functions, so many different options. There's places where you can follow along with these messages. There's places where you can get in on a Bible reading plan and you can make friends on there and you guys can do reading plans together. And so it is such an incredible app. If you are watching us live online or at one of our many services at the Brown County Correctional Facility or at our Howard Swamico site, we love you. We're so glad that you're a part of our family. And if you're right here in the flesh, we love you. And we're so glad that you are a part of our family. And so I'm so excited about starting this new series. We're just calling it Jesus Said. It's kind of a study in the words of Jesus. We're going to spend the next five weeks looking at the words of Jesus because we have so many new Jesus people here. Every week we have so many people choosing to start their Jesus journey. And one of the questions that I get all the time is where do I start? Uh, like specifically people want to know where should they start reading their Bible. And I can totally relate to that. Because when I first became like a Jesus guy, I got a Bible. And that Bible was, it was called the King James Version. Or it was called the Shakespeare Bible. And I just took it and I just did what everybody typically does. I just started reading it at the front. And I just opened it to, you know, page one and started reading it. And the beginning parts were pretty cool. Like I was like, oh, seriously? He breathed in dirt and then he took his rib for real? I love ribs. And like, it's like all these really cool parts. A guy built a boat? How did he fit all those animals on there? And why did he let two mosquitoes on there? And the guy, and he just hit the stick with the water and the water... It parted and they walked through on dry ground. And it's, there's so many odd, really great parts in the beginning. And then it's like a guy who had a really good story and halfway through was like, okay, I'm done. And, but, I, but, you know, he had to fill an hour and 38-minute movie. And so, like, you get to, like, book three and it's like, seriously, this is dry. And so I, like, got into it and I was like, this is, this is really kind of boring. And so I just... I would start it and stop and start it and stop and start it and stop. And, and then I had a guy who was mentoring me. And, and he gave me a new Bible. And, and that Bible had the words of Jesus written in red. It was called the Red Letter Edition. And he told me, here's, here's the deal. I want you to just start reading the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because that's the story of Jesus. And I specifically, he said, want you to read the parts that are written in red, because those are the words of Jesus. And if you read the words in red, the words of Jesus, it'll help you be more like him. Because the more conversations you and I have, the more I realize you're nothing like him. And I thought, thank you so much for mentoring me. And so for the first while, I just read the red. I just read the Jesus parts. And the more I read the Jesus parts, the more I realized that this book isn't dry, but that this book is alive. The more I realized that this book isn't just about how we're going to get to the life after this life. That this book like, isn't just about how we're going to stay out of hell and get into heaven. But instead, Jesus had a whole lot to say about how we're supposed to live during this life. 
In fact, in one of the Jesus parts, he came along and he said the reason that he came was so we could have life in all its fullness. And he wasn't talking about the next life. He was talking about the life that we're in. So for the next five weeks leading into Easter, let's look at what Jesus said. And let's start today by talking about how to have a collision of compassion. Let's pray. God, we love you. We're grateful to you. This is the day that you have made, so we will rejoice and be glad in it. God, thank you for my friends who are here, my friends who are on the other side of the screen, wherever they are in the world. God, I pray blessings on them, protection over them. I pray for their families. I pray for peace in their lives in this difficult time of turmoil and confusion. God, I pray today that your word would become life, God, that it would become flesh and that it would come into our hearts and our minds and change who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. And so today, I want to particularly look at two places in the Gospel of Luke. I want to look at a part from chapter 4, and then I also want to look at a part from chapter 7. Now, I love the whole book, but I really love the Gospels. And I love them all for different reasons. I love Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all different reasons. But what I specifically love about Luke is the perspective that's created by who Luke was. By vocation, Luke was a physician. So when you read something in the Gospel of Luke, a lot of times you can have read that same encounter in Matthew, Mark, and John, but Luke just kind of has it in a different or a unique way. Because Luke, I relate to him, is a little more analytical. So Jesus goes to his hometown and he enters the synagogue. He sits down with his people. He takes this scroll and he reads a passage from the book of Isaiah. Same book of Isaiah that we have now in the Old Testament, which is fascinating to me that our Savior in the flesh could read the same thing that we're reading today. And this particular passage is amazing because it's basically Jesus giving us his mission statement. Here it is. He's in his hometown. Everybody's gathered together in a setting kind of like this. And it says that that he, Jesus, went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue as was his custom. Why did he go to the synagogue? Because for Jesus, it was important for him to go to church. And so when I read that for the first time, I decided instantly that I would also make church a priority in my life because if it was important for Jesus, it would be important for me. And so it says he went to the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was what was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found a place where it is written. So he looks at, at these people who are in front of him and he says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me. And he reads those words in a way that they had never been read before because he was speaking personally. He was speaking in the first person. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. This is Jesus on Jesus. This is Jesus breaking down who he is. He says, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed. And that's a great word, pause. The oppressed, it means downtrodden, broken, wounded. It means bruised, brokenhearted. He has sent me to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, or that means the year of the Lord's freedom, or the year of the Lord's salvation. Then the Bible says when he finished reading, he rolled the scroll back up, gave it to the attendant, and sat down. And in this crazy twist, he looks at the people and he says, today... This scripture, this prophecy that Isaiah wrote 700 years ago is being fulfilled before your very eyes. 
Because what Isaiah was writing about is me. If you want to know what I'm all about, if you want to know what my mission is going to be about, it's this. It's the oppressed. It's the downtrodden. It's the poor. It's the broken. And it starts right here, right now. And I, like, I read that and I kind of get like chill bumps on me because I can just imagine having been there. People who have been waiting, been looking, been, been predicting the Messiah would come and suddenly they're in a synagogue on a normal day and in walks a kid from their hometown and says, these words that you've been reading, these, these words that you've been waiting on, you've just seen it right there. And so I love reading the red because it puts me then and there, but makes it here and now. And so I love reading the words of Jesus and I reread them as often as I can because sometimes I need to be reminded what he's like. Sometimes I need to be reminded what he's about because he's not just a get out of jail for free card. I reread them because I want to be like him. And there are times, quite honestly, when I'm not enough like him. And so right there in his hometown in front of people who think they know him, Jesus says, regardless of what you think you know about me, this, this is what I'm about. This right here is my mission. And I love the fact that from that point forward, as you watch the life of Jesus, as you read about the life of Jesus, he fulfills that mission consistently over and over and over. He does nothing other than that. And so I love how he lives it out consistently, and I also love how Luke writes about it practically. And one of those practical scenes is in the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. So in chapter 4, he gives like this big, bold statement, I am the Messiah, I am the one who has come, this is what I'm going to do. And then in chapter 7, we see that mission broken down practically in this incredible moment in the day and life of Jesus. And it's one of my favorite encounters that Jesus has with someone. It's one of the most incredible moments in the incredible life of our incredible Savior. And every time I read particularly this encounter, it, it fills me with awe. It fills me with like wonder. It fills me really with amazement. Why? Because this is a collision of compassion. Luke chapter 7. It's just, it's just a small window in the life of Jesus. It's just like, it's just like one one day, like one little thing that Jesus did in his life. And sometimes we can look at something that's like normal in our lives and not understand the magnitude of what that could mean for the rest of our lives and others. Watch this. It's, uh, chapter 7 starts in verse 11. It says, soon afterward, which is important. Soon after what? Well, right before this, Jesus had an encounter. Uh, he's in Capernaum. And, and while he's there... He healed a centurion's servant. And so if you were at the men's retreat, you kind of got a little different angle on that. And if you have a guy that went to the men's retreat, then you can ask them what I'm talking about. So here he's in Capernaum, big city, lots going on. It's kind of the center of activity for all the things of Jesus. And so he does that. He heals the centurion's servant. And right after that happens, it says that. So soon afterward. I mean, I just want you to understand how to read Scripture. Because sometimes when we read Scripture, we skim it or we speed through it. But every word in here is anointed. Every word in here is significant. And so when you read Scripture, don't be in a hurry. You have the rest of your life to read the whole thing. This isn't on Oprah's book list. There's no reward for reading it the fastest. Read it like slow down a minute and digest it. You ever read a book and have to go back and go, wait a minute. Who was Miss Mustard? Like you're seven chapters in and you're like, huh. You got to go back. I don't even remember who that person was. And so sometimes when you're reading this, you got to just like chill for a minute. And so it says soon afterward. And when you read that, you should go, huh. Huh. After what? 
Like, what just, what just happened there? Soon afterward, after he healed the centurion's servant, he went to a town. And this is important. What town? He went to a town called Nain. Nain. Let me, t- let me tell you a little bit about, about Nain. Nain is in the middle of nowhere. You don't go to Nain to go somewhere else. It's not like a, it's not like a hub that you connect to to go. You don't, like you're not going to fly to, you know, Minneapolis and, but stop over in Nain to get there. You, you don't drive through Nain to go anywhere. In fact, you don't typically go to Nain. It's like Waldo, Wisconsin. You don't just go to Waldo, Wisconsin unless you're from there or you want to get a speeding ticket because those cops don't play in Waldo. They'll pull you over for one overplay. They do not play. And so soon afterward, he goes to Nain. And Nain is way out in the middle of nowhere. It's in the middle of this rough terrain. If you go beyond Nain, you just fall off. If the flat earthers are right, then Nain is the last stop before the edge. There's just nothing out there. In fact, Nain is 25 miles from Capernaum. And Scripture says he walked. He walked through tough, rough, nasty, gnarly terrain to get to Nain. And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. They all walked like 10 to 12 hours. Why? I can imagine that they complained. I can just think that they're like, I mean, he's good at the healing thing, but he needs his iPhone. He needs some GPS or he needs to ask somebody for directions because it's like, why have we been walking for 10 hours in the middle of nowhere? What was he going to see? You know what's amazing about Jesus? Is that it wasn't about a what. It was about a who. Because it's never about a what with Jesus. It's always about a who. So the Bible goes on, verse 12, as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. Details. Remember, Luke's a detail guy. It says a dead person was being carried out. He was the only son of his mother. But not only was he the only child of this mother, more details. Luke says she was a widow. So let's think about this. She's not only experienced death once, She's now experienced death twice. And she is in a very precarious position. She is about to have a very uncertain future. Because in that situation, in that context, being a widow puts you at the bottom of the social ladder. It put you at the bottom of the food chain. It was rough to be a widow in that culture. So here she is, this unnamed woman, this unnamed widow. And death has blown through her home and left her alone. There is no more laughter. She's not fixing any more meals. She's not telling any more stories or making any more memories. She's going to wake up the next day to an empty house and an empty heart. And that morning she gets up and adds. As she leaves, Scripture says a large crowd was with her, and she probably knew that this would be the last time that she would be surrounded by a crowd. And so she takes in the feeling. She takes in the aromas. She takes in this energy that she feels from this crowd, and she heads out to bury her only son. And as she's going out through the town gate to this little area where she would bury her last loved one, something happens. Because it says as they were going out the city, guess who was coming in the city? Hurt was going out the city, but hope was coming in the city. Pain was going out the city, but purpose was coming in the city. Death was going out the city, but life was coming in the city. It says that in here. And when the Lord saw her, which is all it takes, because Jesus can just look at you and know what's going on in your life. When the Lord saw her, I love this detail, it says his heart went out to her. What happens when Jesus sees your failure? What happens when Jesus sees your pain? His heart 
goes out to you in your failure, in your pain, in your loss, in your sin. His heart goes out to you. And his heart goes out to her. And here's what it says. He said to her, this is so sick. He says, hey, don't cry. <laughs> what? He did. He's the boy. This moment. So it's an odd thing to say at a funeral, isn't it? I mean, there's, I went to the seminary to learn how to do funerals. And they don't tell you to tell people to stop crying. Can you imagine going to a funeral of somebody who you love and at the end of the wake you walk by, uh, past them on the way to the fried chicken, and their hearts are broken and their tears are flowing, and you just look at them and you say, hey, you need to quit crying. Hey, listen, what is wrong with you? Better cut out all that crying. <laughs> you ever get whipped by your parents and they make that line? Hey, you better cut out all that crying. I'll give you something to cry about. Not that my parents ever did that. But you ever had, you better cut out all that crying. And Jesus said, don't cry. Why? Why would he say that? Because he knew this wasn't the end of the story. He knew they weren't going through the gate and getting to the grave. Look what happens. It says, then he went up and he touched the coffin they were carrying him on and the bearers Stood still. I just, just love that. That's just like one of those parts where you just go, huh? Like, <laughs> I, the bearers stood still. Everybody froze. The record scratched. And Jesus said something. He said, young man. He didn't call him dead man. He didn't call him corpse. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. And he called past the veil of limits, past the veil of time, past the veil of human ability. He opened up the veil. He reached through, snatched that boy back and said, get up, get up out the coffin and watch what happens. It says the dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. He looked at that mama. He said, don't cry. Mm -mm, mama, cut out all that crying. You're not going to be alone today. You're not eating pancakes alone tomorrow. And look what the result was when he touched the coffin. It says they were all filled with awe and praised God and they said a great providence appeared among us God has come to help his people what has God come to do he hasn't come to condemn you he hasn't come to judge you he's come to help you because God has come to help his people that's what the message of the church is supposed to be to bring the life-giving message of Jesus to the people of the 920 and beyond and when that becomes the message of the church watch what happens the news about Jesus spread out throughout Judea and the surrounding country come on I love that because it proves that Jesus cares about people not just some people, all people. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. And when that becomes the message of the church, we are set on a collision of compassion. You say, but what does that mean? What's it mean to have compassion? Well, compassion is defined like this. It's where I allow your hurt into my heart. Where I allow your pain, your struggle, your loss, your tears, your failures, your good moments and your bad moments into my heart. Compassion. And it's amazing how God develops compassion. He'll use things in our lives and he'll use things in the lives of others just so he can grow our compassion. There is compassion in you. And it happens over your lifetime. I remember when I was a young pastor, as my first job, my first year in Memphis, Tennessee, and one of my main responsibilities is that I had to spend an entire day of every week visiting people in the hospital. And I hated it. I felt so awkward. 
I felt so uncomfortable, so unprepared. And I would go in, and as quick as I could, I'd try to get back out. But then life happened to me. I got sick, and I spent three and a half weeks in the hospital. And there were times that Sonny couldn't be there because she was still raising babies. And so there, there were times when I was in that hospital alone. And one night, I knew that I was dying. I could feel my spirit Leave is the most surreal thing. You can't even explain it when you know that you're dying. And at 3.30 in the morning, a nurse from Jamaica came in and she asked me if she could pray for me. Before I could say yes, she took her own defibrillator, her hands, and she put her hands on my chest and hot fire went through my chest and she began to pray for me in the Holy Spirit. She began to pray for me in tongues or Jamaican, either one. I don't understand either one. But what I know is that I was healed. And the next morning, I was fine. And for three and a half weeks, the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. But one night when I was alone, a nurse came to me and she showed me compassion. Or there's a time when Sonny and I were in the hospital with our baby girl for 18 days, kissing her cheeks, rubbing her little ears, dabbing sweat off her little forehead. And my brother Kevin dropped everything and flew in just to sit for however long I needed him to. He flew in just to hold me while I cried and hear me while I cussed. And it made me think about all those times that I went to hospitals to visit people just to fill out a form. And even in the times when I found people alone, I prayed the quickest little prayers that I could muster just so I could get out as quick as I could. But now, now when I go into the hospital, I try to bring my friend compassion with me. And I try to take my time. I try not to talk about their sickness or their prognosis. I try to talk to them about their life, about the Packers or the Bucks, the weather, cars, movies, anything but their current state or situation because God allowed me to have a collision with compassion. And just like when Jesus came into that town, it wasn't by accident. He went 25 miles, walked 12 hours out into the middle of nowhere just so he could meet that widow to let her know that her pain had not gone unnoticed. You say, but what about me, Sean? I've never had a near-death experience. I, I've never had to bury a child. What does that look like for me? What does it look like for me to have a collision of compassion? How do I do that? So today I want to give you five things, just some practical steps. We're going to call them five ways to have a collision of compassion. Here's the first. To have a collision of compassion, we go to the pain. It's why we do services at the Brown County Correctional Facility or why we have our kids doing a coin drive for Ben's Wish so that kids in the 920 can have their backpacks filled with food to be able to eat over the weekend. Because Jesus said, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes. And you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came and visited me. Whatever you did unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. So we go to the pain, wherever that pain is. You know, the story of Jesus is called the gospel. St. Francis of Assisi famously said, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. And this might be cheesy because I'm a dad, but the first two letters of the word gospel are G-O, go. The very last thing Jesus told his followers before he left earth was go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. And surely if you do that, I'll be with you to the very end of the age. Jesus was saying, go to the pain. Lean in. It doesn't have to be complicated to be compassionate. Serve at a homeless shelter. Volunteer at the library reading books to kids one day a week. Volunteer at the hospital. Be that person who sits at the information booth and gives out smiles. Or be one of those dudes that valets out front being a calming presence when people are in the biggest time of panic. It doesn't take much and it doesn't take no money. 
My parents who attend our online campus, they're retired. They live on a pension. They have a fixed income. But nevertheless, my mom volunteers one day a week at my old elementary school serving breakfast. Y'all, she loves those kids. Nobody can smile like my mama. Most of those kids come from broken homes with little love and less stability. And so my mom just acts like a grandma to those kids. And she gets all up in their grits, y'all, because love don't play. She asks questions. She gets in their face. Tell them about you doing your homework. Why you only got cookies on that plate? You better go back and get you some fruit. <laughs> That's a grandma right there. You know. uh, where's your coat? You better get it. Boy, you better get a coat. You know the pause, the grandma, boy, you better get a coat. She, all she's doing is leaning in. She's just going to the pain. She's looking for a collision of compassion. Here's the second way we have that is we look for the lost. You say, well, Sean, how do I do that? Easy. Be aware. Always be looking. There's somebody hurting around you at all times. There's somebody lost at all times. Matter of fact, the other day I was driving out of our neighborhood and there was a dog just walking down the street. He is chilling. Nobody around. He is kicking it. He's got a collar, got his tag. He's walking like, yeah, I finally got out. You've been trying to hold me down all my life. And I thought, I don't think that dog is supposed to be out here walking by himself. And I was in a hurry. I had stuff to, you know, to do. I had somewhere else I needed to go, but I stopped. And I didn't know what I was supposed to do because I, I didn't really want some strange dog in my car because I've seen what dogs roll in and what they eat when nobody's looking. And so I didn't want, you know, my car to be messed up by some strange dog because obviously that dog was lost. I stopped. And I know you look at that, you're like, okay, whatever, buddy. Come on, Sean, it's just a dog. Right. Unless it's your dog and you're a senior citizen who lives alone and that dog is your only source of companionship. And so I stopped. And luckily, almost as soon as I stopped, the owner came around the corner and that dog ran up to him. So I didn't have to have some poop-eating, poop-rolling-in, stranger-danger dog in my car. But when that dog and that owner had their Hallmark Channel reunion in the middle of the street, I was reminded lost things are valuable to the people who lost them. And you know what? We live in a world of lost people who are wandering through life. They've lost a loved one or a job, a marriage or a house. They've lost their faith, their direction, their hope. And just like you, when you wandered away from Jesus, they're valuable to the one who lost them. So we are going to look for the lost. Here's the third thing. We are going to love the unlovable. We have got to stop being afraid to care about people who are different than us. We have got to stop being afraid to care about people who have different sexual orientations and people who have different political affiliations and people who are more rich than us or more poor than us. We have got to start loving people who are different from us. And listen, not everybody, go ahead, go ahead. Not everybody's easy to love. It's easy to love people who love us, but what about the people who don't? And I know you're probably not going to be able to believe this, but there are people who don't love me. I'm, I know it's crazy. I know you can't even fathom that. But there, like, there are people who don't love me. Actually, right now, there's someone who's been trying to tear me down on social media. And he is so vicious. He is so vile. Like, we think he's got a fake name. We just think it's a fake thing. It's a pseudonym. But he's got a problem with how much my house costs or how nice my car is or how much money he thinks I make or, you know, trips that he thinks I I get to take and he sees online. Here's the thing. He thought when he started posting stuff about me, he was making me the target. But here's what he didn't know. When he started saying crazy things about me, he became the target. 
Because now he's the target of my prayers. I just started praying for that joker every single day, that God would bless him, that God would heal him, that God, whatever it was. Not because I'm awesome, but because Jesus said I had to. He said, you got to love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, I don't like what he's doing because it hurts my heart. So I don't want you all trashing me on social media. If you want to become a target of my prayers, just ask me and I'll pray for you. So I don't like what he's doing because it hurts me. But I also know he's obviously been hurt himself because hurt people hurt people. My assumption is that he's been hurt either by a pastor or a priest or a church or some kind of an organization. So me and my internet critic are on a collision of compassion because I am not going to hate those who hate me. I am going to love the unlovable, which leads me to the fourth one is we give hope to the hurting. Hope has a name and his name is Jesus. In this culture of confusion and contention, people need compassion. Hurting people need hope. It's why we do Journey to Wholeness. Because people need hope. And hope can come in the simplest of forms. In a smile or a compliment, a word of encouragement or a prayer. Do you know how powerful it is to pray for someone? I was in a store the other day looking for hand sanitizer, but I couldn't find any because everybody else has lost their mind. And so I asked an employee... And, and, and it was like I had just said something ugly about her mama. And she looked at you. She is so rude to me. She was so ugly. And if you're in here, I love you anyway. And I could just tell that something was off, that this wasn't her. And so I said, are you okay? And she looked at me like, what? And I just kept looking at her, like with, like with kindness in my eyes. I wasn't mean mugging her. I was just like, like uh, are you good? And she finally just... She said, you know what, I'm sorry, it's just been a rough day. People have been so rude to me because we don't have any hand sanitizer. I mean, I don't own the store. I just work here. And so I stepped out. I took a chance. I said, can I just, can I just breathe a little prayer for you right here in this store? Could I just breathe a little prayer for you? And, she, y'all, she just broke. It wasn't like I solved all her problems. It wasn't like I miraculously filled the shelves with hand sanitizer or cured the corona. It was just Jesus using me to let her know that her pain hadn't gone unnoticed. It was Jesus using me to give hope to the hurting. Here's the last one. If we want to have a collision of compassion, we, we point people to Jesus. With our words and our works, with our time and our talent, with our means, which means with our money. And we do it by giving out high fives, air, air high fives or real high fives. We, we do that by changing diapers in the nursery, by being on the prayer team or making a big deal about kids because kids are a big deal. We do that through growth track or our online campus, through life groups or serve teams, through alpha. We, we take our compassion and we put it into circulation. And when we do that, the more we give out, the more comes back to us. Is it a risk? Maybe. But I love how Jesus took a risk when he walked up in the middle of that funeral and he just loved everybody. He loved them enough to reach out and touch that coffin, which he was not supposed to do. And the religious leaders would have freaked out. But but Jesus reached out and he did it anyway because he and those people were destined to have a collision of compassion. What about you? Where do you need to reach out? Where do you need Jesus to reach through the veil of human ability, snatch you back and tell you to get up? Where do you need to have a collision of compassion today? Y'all, in this time, can you hear me? In this time where people are freaking out, 
We have an anchor, and his name is Jesus, who will never leave us, who will never forsake us, who will never leave us begging for bread, who's got us right in the center. And there's people right now freaking out, and all they need is the Prince of Peace, the first, the last, the great I am, the Alpha, the Omega, the bright and morning star, for somebody to lift him up through their words and through their actions, through their love and through their prayers. And I'm telling you, nothing happens where Jesus doesn't have a plan. You are his plan. I am his plan. And so today, how is it that you can seek someone out and have a collision of compassion? Would you close your eyes all across this place? You know, salvation is just a collision of compassion. That's all it is. That, that a sinless Savior left heaven, was born in the form of a man, lived a sinless life but died a sinner's death, my death and yours. And he did that on a hill called Calvary where, where he and compassion could collide. So that for the next thousands of years, people like you and people like me could show up unannounced at a place like this and have an opportunity to receive him. Today, your life may feel like it's in turmoil. You may be lost, hurt, confused, whatever it may be. But there is hope. And his name is Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to give you an opportunity to receive him as your Lord and Savior. That's just Christian words for saying the person who's in charge and the person who rescues you. So if you're today and you say, Sean, I don't have a relationship with Jesus but I want to before I leave this place. We're going to give you an opportunity to here in just a moment. And, and here's how. We're going to do two things. First, we're going to confess. Then we're going to profess. We're going to confess that we're sinners. And we're going to profess that Jesus can change that. Here's how we're going to confess. In just a moment with nobody looking around, I'm going to ask for people who need a relationship with Jesus to raise their hand and make eye contact with me. Once you've made eye contact with me, you can put your hand down. And then I'm going to ask you to repeat a prayer after me, along with everybody else in this place. And when you do that, that is you professing that Jesus can save you. So if you're here today and you say, Sean, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, but I need to. With nobody looking around, would you just raise your hand and make eye contact with me? Thanks, 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 thanks. Okay, everybody in here, I'm going to ask you to just repeat these words after me. Say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Come into my life. Change me, make me new, be my Lord and be my Savior in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, if you prayed that, if you do me one favor, take the hello card I talked about earlier, tear the bottom part off, fill it out, check the box that's highlighted in yellow that says I'm choosing to follow Jesus, and just put it in the black buckets at the back door before you leave. I just want the opportunity to follow up with you and pray for you. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes again. We're not done. Just hang on. I wonder if you're here today and you're a Jesus guy or you're a Jesus girl that you say, you know what, Sean, I need to have a collision of compassion. Whether there's somebody in your life who you're, you know, like you're separated from them or you're hurt by them or whatever it may be. You say, Sean, I need to have a collision of compassion. With nobody looking around, would you raise your hand just so I could pray for you? Man, so many people. So God, today we love you. Thank you that you are a God of compassion. God, I pray blessings on my friends. Help us in our week. In Jesus' name, amen.